cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Todd Harrison, and as you will be able to tell from the listening, he and I know each other for a uh, more than a few years. We go way back. Todd has really a fascinating career in finance and, and a very atypical one. It began uh, fairly... Uh, reasonably, um, he ends up on Morgan Stanley's derivative desk. He goes to Gallon, he goes to Kramer Berkowitz, and then he starts doing some really, really unusual, interesting, different things. Uh, I think you will find the space he's carved out presently to be both very, very interesting and somewhat unique. He runs a hedge fund that focuses on health and wellness specifically through CBD and cannabinoids. That is um, the proper pronunciation of what I was messing up. I was calling it cannabinoids, but apparently that's wrong. Uh, It is one of the many um, active medical ingredients uh, in marijuana. He believes this is a space that is uniquely situated to benefit from a number of waves uh, the changes in demographics that are taking place with the aging of American society, uh, how expensive American uh, health care and pharmaceuticals have become. Uh, not only that, but the, the huge change in the science of what we're learning about uh, the various molecules and chemicals within marijuana and all of its medicinal applications. And, and at the same time, he looks at this as a wildly underserved space in the investment world. You know, when I think about legalization, I think about people who are going to go get a Pax pen or a vape and and basically, uh, you know, have a little bit of fun on a Saturday night. He's looking at this completely differently. This isn't about um, recreational weed. This is about the application of science uh, to the compounds in marijuana and everything and all that, plus the opioid crisis, which um, there's a huge overlap in um, helping to solve that and some of the applications of cannabinoids and marijuana. And you end up with what is really a fascinating conversation about a fairly unique niche in, in investing. And if you're at all interested in this, I think you're going to find it fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with CB1 Capital Partners, Todd Harrison. 
This week I have an extra special guest. His name is Todd Harrison, and he has quite the career uh, in finance. He spent seven years on the Worldwide Equity Derivative Desk at Morgan Stanley before leaving uh, to manage derivatives at the Galleon Group. He became president and chief trader at the $400 million hedge fund Kramer Berkowitz. At thestreet.com, he created the Trading Diary, which, for my money, was the first real-time financial blog ever. Uh, he founded the investor education site Minionville, author of the book The Other Side of Wall Street. He currently is the founding partner and chief investment officer of CB1 Capital Management, uh, a healthcare fund focusing on medical cannabinoids. Todd Harrison, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you for having me, Barry. It's a and pleasure. I, and I've been looking forward to having a conversation with you uh, on air for forever. There's so much stuff to talk about. Let's start uh, in the 90s. You go from Morgan Stanley, where you're on the derivative desk, to Galleon, to Kramer Berkowitz. What was that side of trading like during that sort of crazy time, the 1990s? Well, I think it's everything uh, everybody hates about trading now and the Wall Street persona. It was uh, it was a lot looser. It was a lot more maverick. Um, and I think the industry was a lot more fun. Back then, remember, we actually believed we were doing uh, real utility in our work. We believed we were facilitating the mechanism of the capital market structure. And that was noble work back then. It was it was God's work in someone well, else's uh, <laughs> words. <laughs> I, I, I stayed away from that uh, by design, but certainly I think there was a there was a lot a lot of meaning in that back before this all became algorithmic and and certainly uh, dominated by the computer world. And and also before it became less profitable, less yep. volatile, less um, less interesting a, as a career. So. So, Morgan Stanley, you're just a derivatives trader. Are you trading on your own behalf? Are you trading on behalf of the firm's clients? What are you actually doing on the desk? Well, I was trading uh, on the equity derivatives desk, so I was facilitating customer order flow. Uh, but we also traded proprietarily back then. So I had the uh, biotech book. I had the financials uh, that I uh, took uh, as my own. Uh, but it was an interesting journey to Morgan Stanley. I not, I, I didn't always uh, plan to be on Wall Street. Uh, when I went to Syracuse, I was proficient in accounting and finance, and it was really a, a jump ball back then. Uh, but uh, I was accused of cheating on my, uh, on my advanced finance class uh, midterm uh, in my junior year. And as I got pulled to the professor's office, he uh, asked me a number of questions. And when I realized what the dynamic was, uh, you know, long story short, he ended up placing me at Morgan Stanley in London uh, between my junior and senior year of college, and that was really the beginning of of really watching the energy and seeing the 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 way this business worked, and I was hooked from from the word go. So, so you dropped into the middle of that sentence. I was accused of cheating. I'm going to assume it wasn't. Oh, I have this ethicless kid who's a cheater. Let me send him to London. That's where they go. He figured out, obviously, you weren't cheating. Mm -hmm. And what, what was the basis of the accusation? Were you scoring too high on the test? Uh, yes, I blew the bell curve. So <laughs> I, I think I got like 150 something on the midterm. And 
I thought he was going to congratulate me. Uh, but, you know, as it turns out, he's uh, he's a good man. And uh, I was actually in a fraternity with his bro- with his uh, with his son. Uh, it was uh, it turned into a good story. But at the time, it was an interesting dynamic to go to London uh, while you're in college and to sit there. Uh, I was in operations control. I brought the trade breaks to all the traders. I was screamed at, yelled at. Uh, completely demoralized, and I was hooked. I said, that's where I want to be one day. I want to be in that seat. <laughs> I want to be the screamer, not the screamy. <laughs> so so Morgan Stanley to the Galleon Group, which was then a huge and very successful um, hedge fund prior to that little uh, hiccup towards uh, the later years. What would you do with Galleon? Well, I had two. I had two roles there. I traded my own book, but really my primary role was to manage the derivative book. Uh, Galleon, when I started, was five hundred million. It grew to about five billion, um, and it was it was a lot tougher than I expected without the infrastructure and the franchise behind me of Morgan sure. Stanley. Uh, but I think maybe some of that had to do with the environment. Now, you know, I worked there for two years only, and I think. You know, the writing was on the wall after the first year when there was about 100 million to whack up between five partners. There were five partners and me. Uh, I was shut out. Uh, and, and, and subsequently, the next year, something very similar happened. And I was told that I didn't have what it takes to make partner, uh, which I was actually upset about for some time. Uh, but that 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 has passed. How, <laughs> I would imagine. So how do you end up going from Galleon to Kramer Berkowitz? Well, Jeff Berkowitz was always a friend of mine, and I knew they had a, a tough year, uh, 1999, the year prior. Uh, so we had started a conversation once the writing was on the wall at Galleon, and he asked me to come over, and that's where I met Jim and and Jeff, and it was a good dynamic there. So I came in, um, and I took control of the trading operation. I turned the desk over and implemented risk protocols, and uh, you know it was a terrific year. That was Y2K, so that was the one year that Jim and I actually overlapped. Uh, we did quite well that year, uh, and I ended up staying there for another couple years after and, that. And to put for those people who may not be familiar with uh, Kramer Berkowitz, you know Jim Kramer, the talking head. But I, I want to say their long-term track record was something like 23% a year compounded. Yep. Is that about right? Yep. That's a very respectable track record. And, yep. and you're going to take credit for how much of it? <laughs> very little. Very little. Very little. So from that trading background, at Kramer Berkowitz, Jim Kramer decides to launch thestreet.com. And we'll talk more about that later. But you decide to start writing for the street a real-time online trading diary. What what was the motivation behind that? Oh, it wasn't my decision. Uh, this was Jim going on vacation in July of 2000 and asking me if uh, I would fill in for a day. And never having written before, but certainly Jim being Jim uh, is hard to say no to. And uh, it, it was something that I had fun with. I was using pop culture references and double entendres. Uh, and and musical lyrics, and I happened to be extremely bearish. This was the spring or summer of, of 2000, as the case may be, uh, and it just uh, it just took and, and developed a, a, quite a community out of that. So I think a lot of people here in New York might be surprised to know that New York has a legal medical marijuana uh, set of statutes that allows, on an extremely limited basis, the prescription, purchase, and consumption by people um, who have uh, very specific diseases. New York is nothing like California to say, you know, Oregon or Colorado or any of the other places that have really moved from decriminalization to um, full-on legalization. What What is the New York situation? Well, they actually just expanded the access to include PTSD, and that's actually how I got my uh, cannabis card in New York. Is that true? That is true. Um, and... It wasn't going to talk about this, but uh, certainly as a, as a bit of a context for the card, uh, 
9-11 was very profound for all of us. See, certainly. I was going to say anyone who worked with Kramer is entitled to. <laughs> Jim's a good man. Um, <laughs> so, you know, 9-11, we were down there. That's where our office was. And, and certainly. Uh, you, you were know, right on, was it 40 Wall We Street? were 40 uh, yeah. Fulton. So, we, you know, certainly, uh, you know, heard the bang and saw people holding hands and jumping and saw the second uh, plane entering the building. And, um you know, it was a pretty harrowing experience, but I remember that I refused to really let myself feel bad because I felt guilty because so many people lost so much more. And I thought survivor's it was, guilt for sure. And although uh, repressing it is doesn't seem to be the healthiest way to. Uh, well, clearly. But what ended up happening is over the course of uh, the, the treatment protocol, I was I was. Um, prescribed numerous different uh, medications, anti-anxiety, anti-depression. And before I knew it, I was stacked on four or five different medications. That was really just, it changed who I was as a person and really changed how I was able to think and act. Um, And it was during that time. It was that that significant an impact. Yeah. And it's not, this is not a, this is not a a solo story. There's a lot of people out there that I think are, are going through this right now and they become dependent on these prescription drugs. And, you know, that was really one of the catalysts for me to really start to, to dive down into the cannabis space. I, I started to invest in a company called GW Pharmaceuticals a number of years ago. And, you know, they're studying the plant, right? They're taking the cannabinoids uh-huh. out of the plant and studying it for efficacy. So these aren't people rolling up joints and smoking Correct. weeds. These are people who are actually either consuming it in a pill form or, right. or some other sure. consumption like traditional pharmaceuticals. Sure. And, and that's really what, what, uh, really enlightened me because for a long time, and I remember going on TV about eight years ago talking about cannabis as my single best investment idea for the next decade. And I was a little early, uh, but certainly I was also wrong in that I was looking at the job growth, the tax revenue, the prison population, the crime rate, and saying this makes sense. I failed to realize the coordinated agenda by the big pharmaceutical companies to keep this illegal and all of that uh, that I studied and, and looked back on it really what I think is criminal uh, activities on the part of the government to really suppress this, given what they knew at the time in terms of efficacy. So here's the question on that. Years and years and years ago, like the 80s and 90s, I always heard weed is going to be legal because all the big tobacco companies know that their product's killing people and they know how to grow and they know how to roll and they know how to do all this. And one day the switch is going to flip and you know, Philip Morris and Brown and Williamson mm-hmm. and all those companies are going to go from selling cigarettes to selling joints. That never happened. That's not true. It actually is happening now. It is now. I mean, that never happened. Where it certainly didn't happen on my timeline, to be to be mm-hmm. um, precise. How much is that actually happening? And what I'm trying to tee up is how much is that same pivot going to take place with the pharmaceutical industry? That's been fighting right. what appears to be a losing battle. Well, we've been saying for some time that the buy build was going to migrate across four spaces. Buy build. Buy build. So it's not as easy as dropping seeds in the ground and growing a cannabis plant. There's a lot of science, and we're going to talk a little bit about the frontier science, the endocannabinoid system, uh, and, and what the science behind this is. And it's really fascinating. It's it's a for those who are intellectually curious. This is a rabbit hole that I still sure. haven't cl- climbed out of. Uh, but we've seen it. We saw Constellation Brands uh, take a stake in Canopy. That was the, on the beverage oh, side. Really? Huh. We saw AOI uh, buy a Canadian grower. So that's on the tobacco side. Uh, and we think the next phase is going to be biopharmaceutical. And then ultimately consumer goods, because if you think about it, as more supply comes on, prices will decline. That's going to sure. help people who use cannabis as an ingredient. That's going to help their margins on the back end. Huh. That, that's quite fascinating. You mentioned uh, an investment in Canada last year. 
Canada passed a law that essentially says they're decriminalizing marijuana as a country, the first G7 country to do so. What, what's going to happen with that? Well, there, that's going to happen clearly, but I think part of uh, part of the misperception about Canadian cultivators is uh, people are extrapolating that to the Canadian population. But in actuality, uh, what they are going to be is a service station to the world. So they have deals with Germany, they have deals really? all over the all over the world, and you're seeing this sweeping across the world. Whether it's follow the money, whether it's uh, people are understanding for the first time the efficacy. What's interesting is the morning that Jeff Sessions revoked the coal memorandum. The Australian and the Wait, Canadian- explain that for people who may not be familiar. The Cole Memorandum effectively protected the states from government interference. Under President uh, Obama. Correct. All right. And then under President Trump, Sessions- Jeff Sessions revoked that. And, and then didn't we just hear a deal with Cory Booker, and uh, who was blocking some of the president's appointments- Corey, and President Corey, Trump? It was Cory Gardner in, Corey Gardner, in, in, in Colorado. But, um, you know, when we've been saying for some time now that we think that the four most dangerous words in finance this time is different. Right. Uh, that this time is, in fact, different because it's an election year and you have 93% of the constituency that's supportive of medical cannabis. That's amazing. And the only thing that politicians like more than lobby money is being reelected. So we actually have been saying for some time that we thought that you're going to see a pretty significant pivot this year. And sure enough, you saw Mitch McDonald, Mitch uh, McConnell with the hemp bill. You saw John Boehner now. Now, by the way, Boehner was rabidly anti-pot when yep. he was Speaker of the House. And what happened? He saw a little bit of that, no pun intended, sure. leafy green stuff, and suddenly he changed his view? Well, th th there's that. But there's also what I think the real, you know, when we talk about this investment and in, in our strategy, really through the lens of four arbitrages, right? Arbitrage of time versus policy, right? We uh -huh. do believe this is efficacious. And oh, by the way, the only way the U.S. government can tax this is if it's through the FDA. Sure. Right? We believe it's an arbitrage of, of price versus uh, the high net worth individuals and the U.S. institutions that are mm -hmm. going to be onboarding to the space, Vanguard very quietly has become a top five holder in all of the Canadian majors. Really? True now, story. is that is that within their indexes or is that within the one and a half, two trillion that's um, active? I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll, I know I'll that. Ask. That's but, but I do know that when I've gone to these conferences, I've seen Fidelity, Vanguard, Putnam, Goldman all walking around, these barbarians are massing at the gate. If, if, if institutions don't chase growth, it'll be the first time in my 30 years that it hasn't happened. That, that's, so, so here's the question. How big can the market for medical marijuana become? Well, Gallup right now is saying it's about a $320 billion annual market all in. And uh, what is that comparable to? I mean, you know, we have talked, you and I have talked about the parallel with prohibition and alcohol coming on. I think that's a nonlinear comparison because alcohol never killed cancer cells. Alcohol never reduced epileptic seizures. We think that the third arbitrage I alluded to is perception, getting well versus getting high. We think this is about getting well. And we talked about earlier with the Cole Memorandum, the health ministers of Australia and Canada came out that morning and said they wanted to dominate the world in cannabis. Now, their health minister said this. Now, unless they want a nation full of stoners, we're betting that they see what we see in terms of the efficacy. And this is the untold story here. This is why it's so powerful, right? The people, there are people on the right think, that think this is the devil's weed. There are people on the left that like to smoke a vaporizer on a Saturday night. But all of us, if somebody that we love is suffering, we want the best care with the least amount of side effects. And that's the story here. This is a wellness story. I know, and full disclosure, I know Todd for a couple of decades. We both wrote at thestreet.com. 
back in the day. I, I have to talk a little bit about that. We mentioned the trading diary that you filled in for a day. How did that become a daily routine? Interestingly, I found that it helped synthesize my thought process. And I've always looked at the market and said there's always a bear case and there's always a bull case. And if you could, you know, that that friction between those opinions is where both education is found, but it's also where profitability lies, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I took to it... Uh, uh, the online platform and keep in mind this is before blogs and social media so it was still um, a bit of a pedestal I guess uh, but I enjoyed it because it allowed me an opportunity to uh, synthesize my thoughts and really lay it out there uh, in a way that held me accountable to really following my own my own thought process that, that's a very um, astute insight Daniel Borfson was the librarian of Congress and his famous line was uh, I write to figure out what I think, and besides, the bars aren't open at that hour. And uh, you pretty much said something similar. So the trading diary uh, continues, and you did that for a long time. I recall you mentioned there's always a bull and bear case. You came up with a great metaphor for you're putting on your bull suit or your bear suit. I have one one hoof in. I have yeah. two hoofs in. You, you literally explained for readers— not just I'm bullish, I'm bearish. Hey, I'm 75% bullish. Or how did the process of writing help with your own trading? Well, as I said, I think it held me accountable, but it also it also allowed for more sequencing in my thought process. So, uh, you know, certainly, and we talk a lot about, you know, there's always this bull case and there's always this bear case, and we sort of brought them to life with the characters that we invented and animated, and ultimately, you know, they won an Emmy Award for their work. Right. Which Huffy and Boo. Huffy, Huffy and Boo, certainly, and, you know, the perfect media prize, right? An Emmy Award, it looks nice on the mantle, it's nice and shiny, but there's zero revenue attached, you know, <laughs> so, uh, but that was, but that was, was, uh, you know, the idea behind Minionville was really to create a vertical from the ABCs to the 401ks. You know, we identified financial awareness, financial empowerment, financial illiteracy uh, by another name, uh, you know, through my writing at thestreet.com, realized that there's a lot of people out there that need the help, that want the help, that are good people who deserve the help. And I sort of took that upon myself to, to do that. And for 15 years, that was a very meaningful uh, way to spend my day, not a very profitable way to spend my day. Uh, you know, I traded my own account throughout this all, but, uh, you know, certainly I think psychic income was at an all time high. So my colleague Josh Brown called thestreet.com the Motown records of the financial web, and I could point to just about every institution that covers uh, trading, economy, markets, media, um, from, from, from Bloomberg to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal to you name it, and there's a huge ProPublica, a huge swath of people mm -hmm. Um, that trace their roots back to the street.com. So I have two questions for you about that. What was the feeling like inside the street when this new idea of democratizing research rolled out? And then what was the leaping off aha moment for Minionville as, a, as an educational outlet? Sure. So I, I think they were the original online community in, in financial media. I mean, you know that Doug Cass and Tony sure. Dwyer and Bill Fleckenstein and, you know, Jim, obviously, Herb Greenberg. Herb Greenberg. I mean, these are all Kudrowski. But this was, you know, these were good people who happened to trade, not traders who happened to write. And I think that uh -huh. came through, you know, authenticity is very hard to fake by definition. Right. So I think that was authentically um, an opportunity for all of us to give back. And I think that, you know, it was lightning in a bottle for a few years. Sure. Ago. Sure. And then Minionville, what 
What made you say, I want to tack to something that's more educationally focused and, and especially focusing on teaching kids about money? It was 9-11. You know, it was 9-11 in that it was the, it, that catalyzed me to really ask the question, uh, what am I doing with my life? Uh, what's the difference between having fun and, and being happy? I love that quote of yours, by the way. I, I tweeted that uh, recently, and someone said, you should get Todd on the show. And my answer was, well, I'm doing my research. Where do you think that quote came from? Yeah, well, it's certainly, I think before that, I, I was having those questions. I would look in the mirror and, you know, uh, the net worth versus self-worth thing certainly mm -hmm. was a long time coming. Uh, but after 9-11, uh, you know, I wanted to take it to a different level. My grandfather was failing at the time. I had a lot of emotions and I really wanted to just, uh, you know, selfishly create a catharsis. And after 9-11, uh, you know, the street and, you know, I'm not going to get into details. It didn't end well. Uh, and I think in hindsight, I regret a lot of the things that went down and maybe some of the things that were said and done, you know, as you get older, you tend to reflect on sure. sort of uh, what matters and what doesn't matter. We mellow with age. Certainly. And, you know, and, and Jim, you know, listen, I, I, I care a lot about the man. You know, we haven't talked in a long, long time, and that's unfortunate. But, uh, you know, like I said, as you get older, you start to reflect on your life and, and the people in it. And certainly I, have, I owe him a great debt for opening this world to me and also for things uh, that nobody knows that he did behind the scenes that I think are the real definition of a good man, what you do when nobody's watching. Uh, so after 9-11, I decided I was going to put... Uh, all my efforts into starting a new platform. And after I spent about $2 million on it, I decided that if I didn't turn this into a business, uh, then it's the world's most expensive hobby. And, you know, what's that all about? So uh, it turned into something pretty powerful. I think anybody who remembers Minionville can remember the energy and the events and the and the lessons. And, and it's something that I think after the, after, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I think I appreciate it more than than maybe I did immediately thereafter. And, and last question: Tell me about the Ruby Peck Foundation and the rock stars guitars. <laughs> Well, the Ruby Peck Foundation, Ruby Peck's my grandfather, so in 2001 started a children's, uh, Ruby Peck Foundation for Children's Education, and we raised, you know, a lot of money for kids. It was part of the giving back uh, ethos that's part of Minionville, and I remember Doug Cass and you and a number of others got a, that got that all-star guitar signed by everybody from Buffett to Chanos to, you know, Peter Lynch right across the board, and we auctioned it off for charity. So uh, it was a pass-through organization. We raised, raised a lot of money for kids, but, you know, between Minionville and the Ruby Peck Foundation, it was a it was a terrific uh, stretch in my life. But as people say, you are with things for reasons, seasons or lifetimes. And, you know, I guess Minionville wasn't a lifetime endeavor. So let's talk a little bit about CBD. Mm -hmm. Can we call that that instead of my mangling the word? Um, what is CBD and what's it good for? Well, CBD in and of itself is an antipsychotic, right? So it, it's a calming influence. And taking a step back, cannabinoids, and uh, talking a little bit about the science, because this is really the thrust of what's the most important conversation about cannabis right now and what most people are missing is the wellness side. So everything that's alive, whether it's a dog, a cat, a plant, Mm -hmm. A fish, a human being, has what's called an endocannabinoid system, right? And this was first discovered in the late 80s and early 90s. It's the most ubiquitous network of receptors in the human body, mm -hmm. okay? And what they found is, is the cannabinoids found in cannabis are identical in action to the endocannabinoids that your body produces. Mm -hmm. now, so in other words, these aren't things that are getting you high. This has an impact on the biochemistry of the body. Well, about 10% of cannabinoids will produce that euphoric effect. 90% mm -hmm. are non-euphoric, 
all of them are anti-inflammatories. All of them are therapeutic, right? So what they're finding out now is that by looking at the endocannabinoid system, you can now target receptors in your body with certain cannabinoids across a wealth of indications for wellness, right? Now, we, my partner, Lauren DeFalco, and I, and I'll tell you his story, uh, but we spent a lot of time talking to scientists and genealogists, and the mosaic that was painted for us uh, effectively was over the last hundred years, we've gone from hunters and gatherers to desk jobs. Sure. And we've gone from organic foods to processed foods, trans fats, and chemicals. And certainly heredity plays a part. But as you get older, your body stops producing these endocannabinoids. Mm-hmm. Case in point, the runner's high. Everybody always thought the runner's high was endorphins. False. The runner's high is AEA, which is an endocannabinoid. It's identical in action to THC. Huh. This is all frontier science. Remember, it's still illegal to test cannabis in the United States. So all of this is happening in Israel. Elsewhere. Israel, in, in Italy, Germany, sure. overseas, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but what they're finding now, and you might, you, I'm sure you saw uh, the GW Pharmaceuticals, their Epidiolex drug, we have a position in GW, but their Epidiolex drug is reducing seizures in children by 50%, cutting them in half. So they had their FDA expert panel uh, a, while, a few weeks back, and they got a standing ovation on top of a 13 to nothing wow. unanimous decision. So this is going to move forward, which is significant, demonstrates medical efficacy. The DEA is going to have to reschedule, and that's going to open up the pipe in our So let's talk about asthma, Alzheimer's, cancer, epilepsy, Parkinson's. What else is on the list for things that CBD can actually uh, make a difference, either in the quality of life uh, or in potentially finding a cure for these diseases? Well, the, the answer is that it's frontier science, and we don't yet know the scope of the wellness attributes. What's the early? But, it's not, just, but it's not just CBD is what I'm saying. CBD and THC are, are sort of the main players, what everybody associates with cannabinoids. There's lots of other chemicals there in the plant. There is a ton of minor cannabinoids. You think that people were mining for bitcoins, and that became crazy. Wait till people understand how valuable these minor cannabinoids are. Mm-hmm. CBN as a sleep aid. THCV as an appetite suppressant. This is all coming through the pipe right now. There's about 80 to 85 clinical trials. It's going to blow your mind when you see the efficacious agility of this plant. Wait, weed as an appetite suppressant? Now I'm I'm stunned to hear that. Well, weed is a four-letter word, okay? We're right. talking about wellness, right? We're, We're talking, talking about, about specific... extracting the cannabinoids and targeting receptors in your body. And this is literally frontier science, and this is what people don't get. We've gone and spoken to big pharma analysts and biotech CEOs and cardiothoracic surgeons. And they looked at us like we're crazy. Seriously, they yeah. never studied this. As a matter of fact, only 9% of medical schools now even touch on the ECS, on the endocannabinoid system. And that all started last semester, Oxford, uh-huh. right? So you literally have a four-year timeline on an arbitrage here uh, before this becomes mainstream therapeutic relief. So one of the things I read the other day, and it could just be a correlation, I'm not suggesting there's a causation because I didn't look at the study closely, but in states where there's a huge opioid uh, addiction problem and subsequently either decriminalization, medical marijuana, or legalization, the opioid addictions plummet. Yep, 25% in states where it's fr- where friendly, cannabis-friendly states. 25% less morbidity. This is saving lives. Now, people who have been following this for a long time, a lot longer than I have, will tell you that epilepsy, cancer, as a matter of fact, in 1971, Nixon's on tape burying this data, actually blaming the Jews for all the cannabinoid research. Not Nixon. No, never happened. (laughs) But they knew this. 
They knew this really 1971 and they banned testing, which is what I'm saying. This are is you, are you going to make me lower my view of Nixon even further? They, he knew this was uh, had a positive impact and ultimately yeah. still said just bury. I mean, listen, there are so many reasons when we talked about the meat, but think about the racial disparity, right? How this is clogging up the prison system and how this is the crime rate and and the it, cost. What about sim- it, simple calculus? The cost of this is insane, right? But but. My point being, we're at the cusp of, of a revolution in healthcare, which we think is going to be a healthcare disruption. And we think Big Pharma is about to turn buyer, but uh, we don't think they have a choice. I quoted you in a Bloomberg View column a couple of months ago, and the line I said was, imagine for a moment you could go back in time to 1932, the year before the 21st Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratifying, repealing prohibition in the 18th Amendment. And I raised the question, if you could do that, Knowing what the future was going to look like with alcohol being legal again, how would you invest? So we're not quite at the repeal of uh, all these rules against research or medical usage or even uh, recreational usage, uh, but it certainly feels like that's the inevitable way we're moving, That which leads me to the investing question. If everything goes as it's expected— and I imagine it will be parallel to uh, the marriage equality rules. People felt we were getting closer and closer, and then suddenly the dam broke. Uh, how would you position your portfolio? What sectors would you look to invest in? If someone comes up to you and says, hey, I got 10% of my portfolio. I want to be a little speculative, and I think this medical marijuana thing is going to be big. How would you recommend investing? I think the consistencies are you're looking for brands and you're looking for brands that have distribution and quality of product and certainly good management teams and all the things that you would look for in a a good company, right? You're looking Mm -hmm. at management teams. You're looking at at their balance sheet. You're looking at their patent portfolio, uh, whatever the case may be. But where I think it's different now and where I think a lot of people are going to get hurt investing in cannabis is there's a perception that this is about cultivation. And that, you know, a lot of the Canadian cultivators have had their run in the sun, Right. Uh, there's a lot of them that are that are well undervalued. As a matter of fact, I mean, we're looking at a company right now that has about a $220 million market cap that we think is going to do $800 million in revenue in 2020. And why is it trading like this? It's trading like this because there's no institutional research analysts. There's no institutional right. holders. And we think that's about to change in a big way. You're going to see Wall Street adopt cannabis because they're going to follow the money and, and that's where the money is going to go. But it's not just cultivation. Again, cosmetics and vanity going to be huge. Huge, huge vertical, and it's going to have a huge tail end because the cannabinoids, what the people are going to find in the wellness attributes uh, between makeup, uh, between consumer goods, industrial hemp and farming, hempcrete, plastic composites. I mean, the I think what's going to surprise people the most about this industry as it starts to evolve is there's not going to be any there's not there's not going to be any sector that's not touched by this. It's going to it's going to touch every sector of society. So, pardon the pun, but this is a fairly sober approach to investing in a very specific sector that has yet to really gain broad acceptance amongst the investment community. And this is how we're approaching it. So we have exposure in Australia, in Canada, in the U.S., in in Israel, 
in uh, in Europe and, and in South America. And we're looking across 10 verticals, which includes cultivation and dispensaries, but certainly we think that's going to migrate to drugs, uh, from drugs from state dispensaries to medicine prescribed by doctors that's covered by insurance. Like in Germany right now, if you want cannabis in Germany, you go to your doctor, get a prescription, go to the pharmacy, get your cannabis, and submit the bill to your insurance company. That's it. It's covered. And- yes. And we think that's the model. So we're, but we're investing across biopharmaceuticals, we're in, uh, the laboratory space, the, the extraction space, uh, and certainly industrial hemp and farming, we think is going to be a, a pretty significant market for, uh, for uh, consumers. Your, your portfolio, is it all publicly traded companies? Are there any pre-public, any private or venture, or how do you guys approach this? It's all publicly traded companies. And again, I've been looking for an advantageous risk reward in this space for a long time. And I kind of got caught up on if I found a really good private equity deal and it did very well, how am I going to demonstrate that income on my federal tax return? And I always sort of stumbled there. This is... Uh, this is different. We are investing in, we're not touching the plant. We're not moving a plant across state lines. We're invested in publicly traded companies only that are listed on an exchange. And we're legitimately viewing this as a healthcare play. This is not an optics. We're not trying to put a wolf in sheep's clothing here. We're passionate about this because we believe this is impact investing. And I keep reading about all this usage of CBDs as treatments for pets. Yep. Are, are we using our pets as no, again, no pun intended. Guinea pigs, or is there a legitimate reason that we're giving CBDs to to dogs and cats? Again, it's an antipsychotic. I have a very nervous dog at home, and I give CBD to, and it helps relax him. Uh, and again, anything that's alive—plants, fish, dogs, human beings. All have an endocannabinoid system, and again, this is frontier science. We are scratching the surface of what we understand here, and I'd like to, you know, there are a lot of people out there who have been fighting long and hard to bring this to the fore, and it feels like we're right there. This is an election year, and if the Republicans don't take this issue off the table before November, they're going to lose the election. We have been speaking with Todd Harrison. He is the chief investment officer and founder of CB1 Capital Partners, specializing in healthcare and cannabinoid medical products. Uh, Be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the tape running and continue discussing all things cannabinoids. You can find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple iTunes, Overcast, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. Uh, Be sure and check out my daily column. You could see that on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. 
EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Welcome to the podcast. Tato, thank you so much for doing this. I have been looking forward to having this conversation for a while. And I think this is a wildly undercovered section of not only the political issues. uh, My libertarian friends are on the right side of this. Hey, if you don't think the government should tell you 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 can drink or not, then why can they tell you you can? And I don't smoke weed is the funny part of it, but why should they tell you you can or can't? And um, I I just always looked at it as, as a sort of odd... Um, a sort of, uh, and by the way, I'm not saying I never smoked. Don't, don't send me emails. Um, <laughs> but you know, i I found when I stopped smoking, I suddenly became a whole lot more productive, but that's just my experience. We talk libertarian governor, governor Gary Johnson's on our board, along with Dr. Ethan Russo, <laughs> Dr. Julie Holland, Dave Charnick and Lauren Gertner, who, uh, we're proud of that board because these are people who get asked a lot to, to get involved in certainly in this space is a massive massive credibility chasm uh so what we've found is that the people who know what's going on who have the integrity and the authenticity and mission uh they all know each other. So it's been a very good network for us to tap into because there's a lot of good people doing a lot of good work and there's a lot of bad people doing a lot of shady things out of the, out of the 500 or so publicly traded cannabis stocks we found about that many 500. They're about impressive and about 50 to 60 maybe are legit of which we'll own about half of that depending on time or price. But it's really, it's really, we're talking about a nascent industry. And again, that's why we think the buy build is going to be so pervasive because People are going to have to get involved. If you're a spirit company, you have to get involved. If you're a tobacco company, you have to get involved. If you're a healthcare company, if you're a consumer goods company, this is all happening sequentially. So 50 out of 500, right in line with Sturgeon's Law, famous uh, Theodore Sturgeon, famous science fiction writer, defending science fiction when someone called it crap, quote unquote. And he said, yeah, 90% of science fiction is crap. But then again, 90% of everything That's is crap. Correct. And and here, here it is. So 50 companies out of 500... Um, is there any chance that this gets co-opted by the large pharma companies, just gets taken over, and these innovative little small companies get pushed aside? Or is it going to be more like the biotech model where these small, innovative, nimble companies find new molecules, new way of processing, new applications, and eventually they get bought or or merged with some of the big guys? I think the answer is yes. I think you're going to see all of the above. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again... uh, the expertise necessary, especially when you start talking about the science and the endocannabinoid system and the compounds, this is not something that you can pick up, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks or a couple of months. This is something you have to go acquire. And that's why a lot of these companies, in our opinion, are going to be taken out as this becomes uh, more adopted and more accepted across not only uh, state lines, but international lines. And we're seeing that wave theory of sorts sweeping. When New Jersey's governor was elected saying they was going to legalize within 100 days, I said to my partners, how long do you think before Cuomo uh, softens his stance? And sure enough, the next day he came out uh, and and he said he was open to uh, to learning more. Governors do not want to see tax revenue for sure. going to their neighbors. It's and, just not going to happen. And when we talk about tax revenue, it's, it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, we spend literally tens of billions of dollars a year 
keeping an enormous number of people in prisons. And there's a whole nother conversation to have about, hey, you and I, a couple of white guys from Long Island, get pulled over with a joint in our car. That's exactly right. Uh, w- the cop is going to say, all right, you idiots, try not to do this again. But if we're two people of color and we That's get exactly pulled over right. in Queens, we go to jail. That's exactly right. It, it's, it's clogging amazing. the courts. It's clogging the courts. It's clogging the systems. And it's just not right. You know, but you talk about follow the money. BDS Analytics uh, came out with the number and said that the industry owed a billion dollars in state taxes in 2016 and wow. another $1.4 billion in 2017, and that it would save Medicaid another billion on top of that. So all of these billions are starting to add up. And you know, the total market right now, we figure private and public, we've cuffed at around 75 billion that's got a lot of room this is just medical marijuana. this is just legal this is just legal tradable investable assets right now right. but again you're talking about about a 300 320 billion dollar global market before before you start seeing these end products start to uh, start to show up which right. you're going to see because when people understand that this is not a bad thing this is not a gateway drug this is actually an opioid terminus right we talked about the 25% right. mortality rate and a decrease, be- decrease in states where where it's uh, friendly to to cannabinoids and cannabinoids uh, and there's a hu- heavy opioid problem. That's right. And that's just, and, and that's this a is a bit of a blessing. You hate to find pleasure in somebody else's pain, but this is a bit of a blessing for uh, this science because it's pushing the conversation to the fore. Uh, but then you have pain and you have psychological relaxation, all of the mental issues, uh, which people say, okay, I could see it for that. But what people aren't prepared for is this killing cancer cells. Is this- So is, stop, wait, let me, let's take this one by one. Cannabinoids kill cancer cells. GW Pharmaceuticals, which again we own, uh, in two thousand in February of two thousand seventeen, they had their phase two glioma studies, which is brain cancer. Uh-huh. The primary uh-huh. endpoints were terrific. They couldn't release secondary endpoints, which was overall survival, because quote too many people were still surviving. Right. They said we expect to have that information in the coming weeks to months. That was fifteen months ago now. So we think that's that information is actually going to come out this summer at ASCO. We're hoping, uh, but it's going to show pretty demonstrative efficacy against brain cancer, which is one of the, if not that's the most tough, tough, the most aggressive forms of cancer. Yeah. Uh, and there's we a lot, order, there's a lot of science about this. Yeah. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot of anecdotal science. We talk about clinical well, validation. Which? Is it anecdotal or is it science? Well, there's a lot of anecdotal information because it's been illegal to test this, right? So we talk about clinical validation because let's be honest, like let's take those 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 onerous indications out of the equation. People have been using cannabis to self-medicate sure. for, I mean, back 8,000 BC. I mean, we're talking right. 10,000 years now. This has been, you know, this has been in existence. So staying power, right? But it's not just for what people would think it's for. There's a lot more here that science is going to demonstrate going forward. Why can... Um pharmaceutical companies in the United States or any uh, medical schools or whoever wants to do research, why can't we do research on cannabinoids and, and marijuana? Ask Jeff Sessions. That's a good question. It's a Schedule One narcotic right up there with... The worst of the worst, heroin. Yeah, but but we research heroin and we research other stuff. Why are we precluded from doing medical research? Is there a law that prevents that? No, or they, you just can't obtain There's the a multi-billion legally? dollar pharmaceutical lobby that prevents that because they've been lining the pockets of the politicians to really repress this. And then, you know, you look at me like, is that conspiracy theory? No, but, that's but not. Follow- Listen, that's why is the United States pay twice as much for medical care as any other country in the world? So- it's not a big leap to say, oh, and by the way, they're repressing this. But- we'll come back in a couple of years. I will tell you, you'll say that healthcare disruption conversation we had was spot right, on. Right, spot on. So let me ask you, I, I am not a big believer in forecasts or predictions, but let me ask you, 
a prediction, um, and I know this is way outside of your expertise, but I'm just curious as to your views, since you're putting hard capital, including your own money, at risk, when does the United States decriminalize marijuana for medical purposes across the whole country, and then when does it just become like alcohol, another drug sold to adults, like alcohol and tobacco, another drug sold to adults over-the-counter with uh, just a driver's license? Well, I do still believe it's going to be this year's business, even if it's framed as a state's rights issue, which it is also right. a state's rights issue. By the way, everybody who talks about state's rights is a wild hypocrite. They'll use it to That's when right. something goes in their way, but then something goes against them, and suddenly states' rights don't matter. So I've always found that argument to be so disingenuous from most people, um, including myself. You but know, I do think the motivation is political, right? Because this is this was going to be a Democrat a democratic issue. Blue wave this year. This was going to be a blue wave issue, that's for sure. And you saw McConnell, you saw Boehner, you saw Trump, and they're trying to very intelligently, I might say, trying to remove this issue before the midterms get here. And I think they have to. So that's on. Allowing uh, that's allowing the states marijuana. to make their own decisions and the states. So are- just in other words, remove the federal. So it's no longer class one narcotic. You remove the federal government from the conversation and just let the states yep. make their own. decisions. And I think equally important we'll see this year is, is banking reform. That was the next question I was about to ask you, because literally you go to Colorado or Oregon and there's one local community bank. You can't. That's right. J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citibank, none of these companies can do it because they want to have access to the Federal Reserve. Right. Uh, and they operate across state lines, so they're all terrified to do and it. Mnuchin's already said this is a priority for him. I mean, people walking really? around with bags of cash is not sustainable. Supposedly, these black op guys are huge because they're making these $100,000 cash drops every day. And it's just, you know, not... Not a smart way to, to manage business. So you think in 2018 mm-hmm. there will be some reform that will allow um, these things to be banked so you could pay with a credit card. You can deposit uh, – they'll be able to deposit money directly into a major bank that this is going to go completely legitimate. I think so. You know, I mean, listen, it's, it's speculation at this point, given the, the environment. But, you know, look at what's happening north of the border. You have uh, Bank of Montreal now entering the space. I mean, the biggest of the big, you know, this becomes... BMO, yeah. Right, BMO. And as, as in any business, you know, when you see a new revenue source, you're going to, you know, look to capture it. But the government has to get out of the way on this. This is The horses are out of the barn. The patients aren't giving back their medicine. The states aren't giving right. back their tax revenue. And the people aren't giving back their jobs. So if you had to make a bet 10 years from now, blockchain or cannabinoid, which is bigger? Well, I am making a bet. Um, and I think it, I think uh, cannabinoid wellness is going to be massive because I think blockchain is, is going to have its own role. And I think I've always been a fan of, I know this has sort of become the, the popular narrative now. I'm a big fan of blockchain more so than trying to speculate which currency because right. I don't know. But cannabinoid wellness is healthcare, right? This is better care with less side effects. Uh, and when people understand that 90% of cannabinoids are non-euphoric and they're all good for you in different ways and you could target receptors. And I, my partner hates when I use this analogy, but it's a little crude, but rather than the Western medicine uh, of taking a pill and hoping it gets to where it needs to go, you can actually target receptors in different parts of your body as a retrograde pathway. I mean, this is, this is really powerful science here and it's just on the cusp of coming through. So I have two demographics I have to ask you about. First, we, we have 65,000 baby boomers retiring each day. Uh, the population in the United States is aging. What do the cannabinoid group of um, 
compounds and molecules, what do they mean for the health care of the elderly? Uh, the elderly? Yep, yep. It's the, it's actually that that's our that's our focus market. That's why Florida is such a big focus for us because the elderly mm-hmm. obviously take the most medication. But interestingly, the older you get, the better this is for you. If you think about how your body stops producing endocannabinoids as a function of diet, exercise, and heredity mm-hmm. over the course of time, what we've heard all of these scientists and genealogists talk about is an endocannabinoid depression, right? Our endocannabinoid system is just is just withered up and died at a certain age as we get older. The cannabinoids identical in action to what our bodies are supposed to produce, but stop producing. If you ever saw, if you ever seen the elderly ingest cannabis, they light up, right? And forget like the no ju- pun intended. No, no pun intended. But here's the here's the part that's interesting. I'm not a doctor, but what's dementia? Dementia is the degradation of the mind, right? Your mind fails. Your you know it becomes decrepit. What what does THC do? It, it stimulates brain cell activity. So so. Again, is that I, is that a medical uh, observation? No, but I'm just—it's an intuitive one. Okay. You know, glaucoma, the same one. It it, it, it opens. Well, the now glaucoma is a very specific. Right, that's a very specific pressure on the back of the eye, right. which THC, which is why your eyes get red because the capillaries enlarge as the as the t as the as the cannabinoids take effect. So, and then the second um, demographic I have to ask um, for partially selfish reasons because my office. Uh, we have a significant number of uh, veterans we've hired, yep. and that group has an enormously disproportionate amount of medical issues, including depression, and there's some 16 suicides a day. Yep. Not all veterans, but a high number of veterans are in that group. What what can cannabinoids do for that that group of people coming back with PTSD, coming back missing limbs, coming back with all sorts of permanent pain and ongoing trauma, what could this do for that group? Here's the difference between opioids and cannabinoids. You have opioid receptors in your brainstem, right? Mm -hmm. Your brainstem controls your lungs and your breathing, right? That's why people overdose from opioids. You have very, very scarce endocannabinoid receptors in your brainstem. That's why nobody's ever died from cannabis. So right right there, you're talking about pain relief, uh, or or uh, emotional relief without the possibility of death. Much lower risk type of medication. Clearly, the adverse effect profile is is demonstrably better for starters. Mm-hmm. That that's quite that's quite interesting. You're very comfortable speaking in public, but you weren't always very comfortable speaking speaking in public. We want to have a conversation about that. You said everything's on the table. Sure. Do you remember you and I? Doing an episode of Dylan Dylan Radigan's MSNBC show. Dude, you were Albert Brooks on broadcast news. I listen, I think it was one of the best lines ever ever said on TV. If we don't stop being Democrats and don't stop being Republicans and we start being Americans, this thing is just gonna fester. Right. And what happened? It's festered. It well, we're there. That was almost a decade ago, and you're right, it did fester. But what I'm bringing up <laughs> is is not that we got off the set and you were drenched. I'm bringing up you're so much more comfortable discussing this than you were talking about whatever we were talking about. Is it just you've gotten used to this or is it you're just so enthusiastic about the subject that whatever butterflies just have disappeared? Well, I'll tell you this. I've, you know, and, and some people will maybe disagree with this, but I've never really been interested in doing the whole media thing. And I did it for a long time at Minionville because I felt like obligatory sure. it was part of the biz, part of the part job, of the job right is yeah. to get more sort of page views and, right. and, and clicks and it's also uh, see 
from everything we've talked about, writing as a way to, to distill what you think and being able to share your perspective, I've always looked at it as, first of all, it's fun. To I started doing Cudlow and Kramer. Me too. I did 2003, that. 2003. Yep. They were fun to have the conversation with. You got to help shape the debate, especially there, there really weren't a lot of people talking about subprime housing and derivatives yep. and, and CDOs. Prior to, we were on the uh, Money for Nothing Federal Reserve uh, documentary. That's right. You and I both were, yep. and and there were very few people talking that. And just being able to move that debate forward, I especially when you say I've seen something that's unique, no one else is talking about it. And I want to have this discussion. You seem to be doing that same thing with with the cannabinoids I, today. It's the parallel to two thousand six seven, maybe even two thousand five six seven, before the market. Well, I think Reacted. I think that's is, is fair. There. I mean, I've always been somebody that needs a purpose. I need a purpose to get up in the morning. I need mm-hmm. to be passionate about what I do. And it hasn't always been that way. And I think for a long time, you know, when the writing was on the wall with Minionville and I still was, you know, sort of, you know, going through the motions because I had that sense of duty to finish that thing. Uh, it lost a lot of its passion, a lot of its uh, spontaneity, a lot of its enthusiasm. This to me, this to me is powerful. Right. I've seen the parents. I've talked to the parents. I've this oh, is the stories. The are, stories uh, just, are heartbreaking. Right. I, was, yeah. I was sitting there watching them speak at the GW uh, expert panel when I was swelling up. Watch. I have a little girl at home. I have right. three kids at home. You know, any parent is going to see that and really it's going to hit home. Wait, for them. this can cure my kid's disease and you're not letting they're us going, have it. They're who, kids who do going, I have to run over with a steamroller? There are kids that. going from 300 seizures a day to two a month. Right. And they're saying that this is illegal and they have to run from the feds. They have to move to Colorado to get there. It's criminal. This is the time has come for this issue. And and what's why we're passionate is because people are so off sides here. They think this is a gateway drug. Yes, it is a gateway drug. It's a gateway off of opioids. Right. Right. But it's also a wellness play. And that's what people are missing. They think of Cheech and Chong. Even still, you said to me just before during a break, you know, maybe do you have any samples with you as a joke? But we hear that all the time. People think this is about getting high. The more people who think this is about getting high, the more of an opportunity is for the wellness strategy because people are looking on the wrong side of the pipe. I mean, it's (laughs) but it, it really is true. I, I'm astonished, by the way. There's a bunch of stuff I have to Nobody's ask Nobody's talking about this. Nobody's married the science and the strategy. It's it's so amazingly clear that this is a wildly undercovered space. It It's shocking. Um, so we have an office in Portland, Oregon. And when we're out there, the first time we were out there, I said uh, to our employee, Joey, I've never been in a weed shop. You got to take me. And it was the craziest experience. First, it, like there's a... They buzz you in, and this door slams behind you like you're in a vault. You are in a vault. And then you have to show ID, and they photo ID, and then they take you to the next thing. And it's sort of like the Starbucks of weed. There are all these different things, and the you know the mellow caramel flavor. And I'm right. Well, it, there's different strains, different cannabinoids. Everybody to me has. It's a, the same same coffee slash yep. wine slash. The, there is a certain type of. Um, obsessive deep dive xenophile uh type of i'm drawing a blank people are passionate about their cannabis i mean not just from a wellness standpoint but again i think i think from a semantics and lexicon craft beer is probably the best parallel i could come up with they're like i like this i don't like hops i like a white beer and it's the same sort of is this uh is this indica is this sativa what's the 
the the depth of enthusiasm is is really but impressive. but I'll say this though just because I think it's important I was at a a Wall Street dinner uh, a few months back. Uh, and they were talking about cannabis and framing it as a discretionary vice, framing right. it as beer. Right. A, a, is that, I, that's my frame of reference. Right. Of course. That's most people's frame of reference yeah. for this. But it's, in our opinion, it's off base because it's this is totally again, medical. Th- well, again, it's not all medical. I think a lot of it's semantics. People have self-medicated. And certainly right. there's a contingent that does this recreationally or as it's called adult use. But I certainly think there's, <laughs> there's, there's blurred lines that people who believe that, do, that they're doing this recreationally, but really they're self-medicating in a way that maybe they don't realize. I remember, I know you well. I know Jim Cramer well. I read the first book, Confessions of a Street Addict. The, the one aspect of that book that stayed with me was Kramer taking a keyboard and smashing it. And literally, there's somebody assigned to, before the keys stop dancing across the desk, someone has to walk into the closet, get a box from a stack of keyboards, come back, plug it in, so he's ready to trade. Literally, the keys haven't even stopped moving, and there's another. Is that an exaggeration, or is that a fairly accurate occasional it, occurrence it was the best of times it was the worst of times but again <laughs> i owe jim a, a great deal of uh, of debt for you know really being kind to me you know my father uh, as, as an example when i was this was y2k we're in the middle of a of, of y2k i don't know how else to put it you know 15 point swing 15 percent swings in a day and you know i got a call my father who i hadn't talked to in many years was uh, in, a, in a in a jail in Maui, uh, it you know it was really like emotional sort of like. And Jim turned you know middle of the trading day gets off the desk and he calls up his people in 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 Hawaii and gets an attorney and says go we'll take care of everything. I mean these are things that people don't know about Jim right. is how kind he is when nobody's looking. And I think uh, I think the rest of it you know he's a passionate guy you know he sure. he hates to lose. Uh, but if you're his friend he'll do anything for you. If you're his enemy uh, like I still appear to be I guess uh, you know you're persona non grata. So so the thing I, I've always been amazed by Kramer. So people have told me I don't have much of a filter, and that's sort of true. I guess I have to cop to that. But Jim, literally, like whatever voice inside your head that says you shouldn't say that, he is completely filterless. You, you've never – and anyone who's never spent time with him, for, for good and for bad, no one in the universe is more honest. There's zero filter. There's just nothing between, hey, maybe I should hedge this a little bit. Maybe I should put a little, maybe I should make this a little white lie, put it, pretty it up. That filter is congenitally not there. And that's what makes him such a unique and fascinating individual. Because say what you will about him, you know you're not getting spun by him. He is telling you exactly what he thinks. I don't know how else to describe that. Well, I think I think Bill Fleckenstein uh, said it best: sometimes right, sometimes wrong, always honest. Yeah, I mean you're getting the yeah. you're getting you're getting the truth, and I think there's something to be said for that. And it's a shame you guys had your falling out. He he seemed to feel that you uh, you stuck a knife in his back. You just had enough of what you were doing and moved on. Yeah, no, and, and this is sort of the, the you know this is I guess my cross to bear. But you know after. 
after 9-11, I had my own issues and I wanted to do something meaningful and, and kind of strike out on my own. And, you know, having I was a writer on the street.com and I was at the time president of his hedge fund. So I understand sort of the animus of, of me leaving and doing my own thing. But, you know, again, things were said and done uh, and certainly on my part uh, that I take uh, full responsibility for. Uh, but, you know, life's too short to kind of hold these things going forward. I've, I've always thought you've had a very healthy attitude, not only about stuff like this, but about money and the pursuit of it and understanding it's just a tool and if it's your whole life, there are problems. I with mean, that. listen, Minionville, you know, when, you know, Minionville still. Actually, Did that really cost you $2 million? Or $2 it million? cost me like $22 million on paper. Well, uh, and, and I mean, in actual. Yeah, out of- I put a few million in, but I put 15 years of my life and, and, and every right. part of my body and soul and purpose into it. So, you know, it was like losing a child. And, you know, when I say losing, listen, the digital media model broke. You know, I got in. I said I literally wrote an article that said the digital media model's broken, you know, and I'm putting this up for sale. And we sold some of it, uh, which was, you know, the proceeds were used to pay back everybody that was owed money uh-huh. uh, for the most part. And, and, you know, certainly I have the, uh, you know, it's still up. You know, I have the I have the. the archives are still there everything's there and you know it's still up there so you know in the back of my mind i I sort of think there may be a revival one day but you know i think part of it also is there's a lot of very good lessons in there there's a lot of good content and and really it was a real-time uh assimilation of probably the most interesting 15 years in financial history so through that lens i mean from y2k to uh you know to 2000 and call it 15 you're you're talking about a a lot of changes in the financial system well you haven't seen the next 15 years and i have a sneak suspicion it's going to be uh, uh, perhaps just as interesting. All right, so let me get to my favorite questions. These are uh, the things I ask all my guests, and I, I have found that they are both fun and intriguing and revealing. Um, and a lot of these have come from listeners, so I've, I can't take full credit for all these. So let's jump right into this. Tell us the most important thing people don't know about your background. Well, I think there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot that people don't know, but you were you were starting forward at Syracuse, right? Yeah, me people and Derek don't know Coleman. that, right? No, what what do people not what give us a little? I, I think it's you know I think it's really if anything it's the fact that it just you know I've been working since I'm 13 years old and you know from from working in a bagel shop of turning bagels at 13 at five o'clock in the morning on a Saturday to you know when I lived in California for high school and going out to Simi Valley and picking weeds for fifty dollars a day picking you know, what I'm sorry picking weeds out of a field like literally like you literally weeding the I was weeding for fifty dollars for eight, eight hours keep, in the sun I keep hearing subconscious weed references no no picking yeah, weed no, I understand and then something now. about Maui in California <laughs> no, no, I'm just I thinking Maui's no. Zowie like but, everything has a, uh, but, but menial labor. My point being, you that's know, backbreaking labor. That's yeah, hard but, to but, do. But I think it's the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, when I was a young kid, my mom said, if you want money, get a job. And it stuck with me because we didn't grow up with money. We lived right. on the other side of the tracks and I always wanted to be the guy with the money. And it taught me at a very early age. If you want something, you better put the work in. Makes sense. Tell us about your early mentors who, who guided your career. Who do you, who did you take a lot of, uh, lessons from? <sighs> Well, I've got to say, in early 1990s, in 1991, when I started at Morgan Stanley, there were a few people there. Jack Skiba, uh, you know, I would come in at 5, 5.30 in the morning and uh, write up the T accounts and write up the point and figure charts. And uh, certainly Jack was a was a meaningful purpose, uh, person in my development. Tommy Carden, David Slane, these were people who were there early and, and they didn't really care about anything other than seeing me succeed. And I think that's uh, there's something to be said for that. People don't realize what those desks were like back in the day. I had friends on on the Merrill desk. Um, 
I knew other people on other. That was a big family, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, when I was Brothers at Morgan Stanley, arms. we were, you know, we used to put on our hats and go to war against Goldman Sachs every day. I mean, it was Morgan and Goldman, right? So we were, we took that seriously and we would go out there and try to get all the customer business we could and try to tra- out trade these guys. And remember back then there were no taped lines. You know, your name was your word. If you if you picked up a, a phone and, and made a trade, you're bound by your own, you know, language. Yeah. And, and that's it. And But it worked for a long time until, until it didn't, I guess. So- what traders influenced your approach to either trading or investing? You know, I've always had a respect for Peter Lynch, and, and the obvious uh, the obvious reason would be, you know, getting to know your investment and really believing in your investment and having a stake in your investment. But I also like the fact that he was that you know he adapted his style to the market and there are a lot of different markets you know there are times when you want to you know fade the market and trade around a core there are times you want to hit it to quit it there are times you want to you know uh invest for the long haul and and trade uh you know against it and i always admired uh peter lynch for having the ability to sort of uh to adjust his style to the type of market that he was in hit it to quit it which is a phrase i love and most of my Young colleagues have no idea who James Brown is. Um, <laughs> hit it, then quit it. Um, let's talk about everybody's favorite question. Tell us about some of your books that you like best. Um, well, I mentioned the book you wrote, but what do you read for fun? What do you read uh, for finance, fiction, nonfiction? Tell us what you enjoy. Well, I think uh, from a book standpoint, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl is probably the most powerful book I ever read. Mm-hmm. Um, and I strongly uh, suggest it uh, if you haven't read it. But, you know, I'll tell you, given where we are right now, I'm reading nonstop, but I'm reading about clinical trials and I'm reading about research studies and I'm reading about everything that's happening around the world in cannabinoid wellness that people don't get. So we're actually to that end. We're building a CB1 Capital. We had our website. We're building a research repository that should be up this week. So you'll be able to go in by indication, whether it's cancer, pain, uh, epilepsy, and be able to access all of the research that we've been reading because we want to share this with people. We want people to understand what's going on here. Have you plowed through any um, book on health and wellness that really stood out with you? Because I know you've read a ton of that stuff. They all kind of blur together in my mind. Anything yeah. stands out? Well, you know, Dr. Julie Holland, who's on our advisory board, has written some terrific books. The Pot Book is one of them. She's also done great work with MDMA and depression, which uh-huh. I think is probably on the horizon as the next, like, oh my gosh, is that really medicine? Uh, so there's a lot being done, for, particularly for veterans, for PTSD and things of that nature. Uh, but she's certainly the, the first step that I would take in, in learning. Normally at this point, I would ask you, what are you most excited about today? But I don't think I even have to ask that. I've never been this excited. I think this is the best risk reward that I've ever seen. And the next question is, what's the next major shift that you see coming? But you've you've already answered that also. You think politically this is going to be just the next domino. Marriage equality fell under the Obama administration. You think this is going to fall sooner rather than later? I think it has to. I mean— the the world is not waiting for the U.S. This is an outside-in, right. global bull market. And We're lagging, not leading. We are we are way behind, and by our own doing, right? But certainly not too late. We have this. This is a great country. We have the resources and the intellect, and 
you know, uh, you know, we the talked capital. about we have the capital, but we also have the human capital, right? There's a lot of these kids who are coming up right now who don't know what to do, and and a lot of these uh, industries that I think we grew up on uh, have changed so dramatically. I'll put Wall Street at the top of the list right. in terms of the way it used to be versus the way it is now. But I got to tell you, like I have kids, and I think I think cannabinoid wellness, learn the science, right? It's going to be such demand for people who understand this science. You're talking. Six figures out of the gate for your entire career, in my opinion. You just got to put the work in. And you got to learn the science. So this is a, a, always an interesting question. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. How much time you have? Uh, <laughs> I've got a lot of failures. I actually give us, give us one that stood out that perhaps people could take a lesson from. Well, um, I remember when I was at Morgan Stanley. I think this was about 1995. Uh, I was what 24 at the time, 25 maybe, uh, and I was just coming into my own. I just you know, and I never, I never was prepared for life on a trading desk. I came out of Syracuse University. They gave me a Black Scholes model and a Wall Street Journal, and they're like, "Good luck." Right? right, but none of that was applicable, really. So, uh, having to teach myself the derivative business, and uh, certainly uh, stumbled more often than I would like to admit, but got to where I thought I was in a pretty good space. And uh, you know, one day we had a customer come in, and uh, the biggest bank trader on the street, and wanted to buy first interstate calls. And you know, it was an eighty, it was a hundred and twenty dollars stock, I think. He was buying the eighty calls, like forty, fifty dollars in the money. And, you know, we started buying them after the first 500, after the first 1,000, after the first 2,000. I said, what's going on? And he tells me a story that he thinks it's going to get taken over. So Clearly. <laughs> right? So he ends up buying 8,000 calls, which at the time was position limit. I sold the most of them. And against that, I pretty much was long everything under the sun against this stock. I was going to make a lot of money if this happened. And I also told a lot of my friends on the desk, uh, you know, like you said, it was a very collegiate community. So I told everybody who would listen, this is where you want to be in this stock right now. Now. And I'll never forget it was uh, it was about 3:50 one afternoon, and my sales trader Kim Despignuk said, "How are you making letter I?" And I'm thinking to myself, "Geez, you know, he's position limit. I, I thought he knew that." And I showed him an offer, and she said, "No, I need a two-sided market. He wants to sell them." So I try to get the story. I assume the deal is off. And I bought the first 500 and I got myself in shape, sold a lot, bid him on the rest of, which is a terrific bid at the time for 7,500 calls. I said, I'll, you know, I'll bid you X for these. And he said, it's a great bid, but I'll, we'll pick it up tomorrow morning. So, uh-oh, uh-oh. So, right, right. That was my thought. So the next morning uh -oh. I come in early and I'm sitting there and, and I'll never forget Bobby Groskoff who ran the banks on the, on the listed side of Morgan Stanley runs up to me. He said, are you still involved? Let her I. And I kind of looked at him. I said, yeah. In a big way. And he said, well, you're still long, right? And I said, uh, why? And he said, I can't tell you. And then sure enough, you know, 15 minutes later, I went to the bathroom and I hear the just cheers on the trading floor. Everybody's excited. The thing got taken over for like $180 or whatever it was. And Morgan Stanley was the banker. So I was restricted. I was probably down. I would have been up four or five million. I was down, you know, something in the Comparable. seven figures. And... I thought I was done. I was like, wow, you know, 25. You just lost $5 million. Well, I, I, I thought I was done. I waited till the end of the day. I was the last one there. My How much money came back from that trade to the firm because the guy- uh, I have no idea. Oh, I know. And then I, then I had to execute agency and I had to error for 100. It was, <laughs> and um, long story short, I got pulled in. My boss asked me what was going on, what happened. I told him play by play what happened. And he said, you traded it right. 
that's exactly what you should have, how you should have handled it. You know, come in tomorrow to, to, to fight and ended up getting promoted that year. I was the youngest vice president at Morgan Stanley. But it really, what it taught me was you have your process, you stay to your process. Sometimes it's going to work, sometimes it's not going to work. But if you stay true to your process over the course of time, it's going to work out pretty well. There's nothing more nauseating than that sensation when you have a giant position and suddenly you realize, oh my God, this is just going totally. I'm sweating. Me. I'm sweating like, talking about it. Right like now. I remember that I have a pretty iron constitution. My gut, I can eat anything, as you know. <laughs> but um, I just remember that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. Now, like, this is there's no oh, business here comes like this. Breakfast here come here it comes. Yeah. And uh, God, you had to you had to look at that and go five million. Yeah, but I mean, listen, when I was, we were at Kramer Berkowitz, you know, a few years later, we were having thirty million dollar swings in a day, up yeah. or down, or both, both ways, both ways. Well, Kramer tells the story of being on. Was it the Asian Contagion in '98? He's on the beach getting shellacked. The market's up forty percent that year. He's down fifteen twenty percent from the beach. His then wife, who he called the trading goddess. Yep. Picked up the phone and literally said, buy Dell, buy Yahoo, buy EMC. Went down the whole list and basically, in a bikini from the beach, saved their year. Ha- uh, true, more or less? I wasn't there for that. It I was, was there. Uh, I, we, I'd say one of his one books. Year. It's definitely in one of his it books. Was, uh, there were interesting times at the turn of the century. There were certainly interesting times, something I'll never forget. And I, you know, we didn't talk about in, in 2000. So I was lightly bearish then. Nobody knew who the hell I was. So no matter how bearish I was, it wasn't relevant. You were full on bear come March 2000. Yeah. Like you went full on. I said we were going to the War of 1812, and we were at 5,000 something at the time. So, so better so lucky than smart. Better lucky in that I had actual a platform to, you know, otherwise if you're, bear, if you're bearish in the woods and the market goes down. I was bearish it? in the woods in 2000. No one knew or cared who the hell I was. Um, what do you do for fun? What do you do to stay either mentally or physically fit outside of the trading room? <laughs> You know, I, I got a Peloton from my wife for the holidays. and Second person who told me And that. I live on that thing as much really? as I can. Yeah, it's terrific. I, you know, I try. You know, it's tough. I get out. You know, we just took an office in Port Washington, which is mm-hmm. a stone's throw from my uh, from my house. Chateau. And, you know, I thought this would allow me to do some more in the morning. But no, I just get to the office like at 6 o'clock, 630. And right. you know, I just can't wait. You know, to be able to get up every day. And this is another one that I, I've always said and kind of lost its luster. You say it enough, but it's so true. You know, if you do what you love with people you respect while serving the greater good. I mean, that's it's not that, work. That's professional nirvana. That's as good as it gets. If you can get up every day with purpose and and do something you love and actually have a knock on effect for society or or at least believe you do, uh, I think you're 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 a blessed man. You more or less just answered the question I'm about to ask. So if a millennial or a recent college graduate came up and said, hey, what what sort of career advice uh, can you give me? What would you tell them? Would, if they said, I want to go into either trading or investment, investing, what would you say to them? I would say to prepare yourself for a very long, uh, a very long process. I mean, listen, the cream will always rise to the top and there'll always be demand for the exceptional talent. But certainly the playing field has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not even talking about the 70 percent of trading that's done by computers now. I'm just talking about, you know, the efficiencies. I mean, listen, when I started at Morgan Stanley in the early 90s, the Dells, the Microsoft, the Intels of the world would all sell puts rather than buy back stock because they, they were capital gains instead of the, there were right. lots of reasons uh, to do that. But my point is we would price that 
and we we would win, you know, by 70, 80 vols because we were the only ones in the market. Right. So we'd make 70, 80 vols pricing this this paper. Uh, and in a couple of years, we were winning business by maybe a quarter penny. Right? right. So the inefficiencies were such. Those inefficiencies, in my opinion now, exist in the cannabis space. You have no institutional presence. You have no institutional analysts. And you have a lot of inefficiencies that uh, because you have all retail holders in a lot of these names, they're very emotional. And you have these moves that are outsized relative to what they should be. So if you have the the time horizon and the risk profile and the fortitude to kind of see through that, I think you can make a lot of money here. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of investing and trading today that you wish you knew 20 or even 30 years ago? I think it would be just to hold on to your winners and let your winners run. Uh, you know, I think you have to, somebody once said to me, don't be afraid of losing money or, or don't be afraid of making money, I should say. Meaning, right? now I've always heard... Hey, bulls and bears get uh, 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 bulls and bears make money, but pigs get slaughtered. Yep. And I always thought it was terrible advice. Say, oh, you're up thirty percent, hit that bid. When, especially in a world of Amazon and Apple, right, and but there Netflix. are different strategies. You can trail your stops. You, there's a mm -hmm. lot of different things that, rather than just say, "Okay, I'm up," what you we might have a preconceived notion of how much we should make. Okay, I hit that, and I will get out. If you do that, you can make money, but you're never going to get wealthy. Right. right? You're never going like, to like. I listen. I say to these guys all the time in the office. You know, we sell for dimes, we buy for dollars. That's right. right. So I want you know. Listen, do I if I think a stock gets over its skis, I own two fifty. Will I sell twenty five or fifty because it's up? 50% in a matter of two weeks? Trade yes. around. But I'm not going to sell the position because it reached some, uh, you know, some P&L that I deem to be adequate. Uh -huh. You know, that way I'm never going to really turn this from, uh, you know, from a trading operation to an investment shop. We have been speaking with Todd Harrison. He is the chief investment officer and founding partner at CB1 Capital Partners, a health and wellness medical cannabinoid uh, hedge fund. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes or Bloomberg.com, Overcast, wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you can see any of the other 200 plus such recordings we have made over the past four years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack staff who helps put together uh, all of our weed-related podcasts. Uh, Taylor Riggs is our booker-slash-producer. Medina Parwana is our audio engineer-producer. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.